Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast and joining me today is a young lady from across the water, around the globe, from Australia, Chloe White, who comes on the show to talk about Bitcoin, working inside the government, working on the blockchain project, what is going on, what can we expect, What's the energy fart all about? Because she has a very big insight on that and it's very upsetting for her. So please stick around and listen to that. And thank you so much, Chloe, for coming on and sharing everything that uh, you shared with us. Before we get into the show, timely, timely reminder, please don't get into leverage games and get yourselves wrecked on exchanges. Buy your sats, stack your sats one of the show sponsors or anywhere else in your country it doesn't matter who you use but we sponsor the show coin floor in the uk swan bitcoin in the us and relay across europe r-e-l-a-i that's dot c-h use forward slash bitten for all of those websites and that will unlock an extra little feature for you save on permission or kick you off for a free 10 bucks whatever they're running at the time these are trusted companies, they're Bitcoin only, but then you've got to take control of these sats you can use from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bit on the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. It's easy to use, easy to set up, it's fun to play around with, lots of cool features, one of which is uh, the USB connection. It automatically checks your computer for any malware. It's really cool, it's safe, it's there's an episode coming out soon. Look out for it. Let's do this episode with Chloe. Thanks for listening. Okay, we are recording. Chloe, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Lauren, we have to say good day. I can't say that. Why not? I don't have an Australian accent. <laughs> You've got to practice. Chloe can help you. <laughs> Come on, try it. Good day. Good day, mate. What do you think of that? It's better than mine. Do you, I mean, good day. It's it's like it. It's the same as bonjour really? in French. It's a literal translation. Really? Bon, good, <laughs> jour, day. You see, these, these Aussies are so cultural. They they just took the literal French translation and they, they made it their own and they just threw a little stank on it. That's all. Like, good day, mate. <laughs> So a lesson in, in vocab today. So, but did you have a question for, for Chloe? Uh, yeah. What does it feel like working for the Australian government? Well, working for the Australian government is very interesting because it exposes you to every different possible point of view. Uh, part of my job is uh, to interact with all of the stakeholders that uh, are in the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency sector. So I talk to Bitcoiners and I talk to enterprise and people in the community and policymakers, regulators. So uh, a very diverse set of people that I talk to every day. And I think that what that 
feels like for me is it means that I'm constantly testing my assumptions and always trying to refine my mental model for how things are set up and why and, and what the implications of that are for the economy and technology. So it's very interesting because I'm constantly learning. Sound pretty cool? Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you have any more questions? What's life like yeah. in Australia? Uh, oh, <laughs> do you see any ko- um, koalas around? There are koalas all around Australia, but you don't tend to see them in the city. I saw some koalas about a month ago when I was travelling up the coast and I visited a koala hospital. So oh. there were a few um old and sick koalas there but they had a lot of space and they were hanging out in the eucalyptus trees and they seemed quite happy what's the television show what's the name of the hospital that you watch she uh, watches a show on netflix i think yeah i, I finished it and that's called is he the koala girl is he the koala girl yeah, yeah but like it's in real life they yeah it's an actual hospital and yeah and they look after they rehouse yeah. koalas yeah yeah and then they let them out in the wild when they get better mm-hmm so she has there's a, a lot animal. of wildlife that you can see if you're just um, traveling around or going for a bushwalk. I think a koala is one of the only famous Australian animals that I haven't seen um, without intentionally going to visit them. So koalas are a little bit more tricky where I live. Okay. But you're you should too visit young, Australia one day. Yeah, we, we 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 hung out in Australia for a few months while we were traveling around, but uh, these remember. guys were barely four. No, I think yeah, well actually no, you turned four in, in Australia. Can we go back? Close to Brisbane in Surfers Paradise. We we will go back. No, I thought we went back and then like we, No. Uh, we spent almost three months there. But yeah, you guys were very young. And we went to the theme park for your birthday. Oh yeah, that place I remember. That's all I remember. <laughs> right. It's great for kids up there. I went there when I was uh, probably around the same age as you, Lauren. But it's a pleasure to meet one of the rising stars of the Bitcoin podcast scene. Thank you. <laughs> She's going to start her own one soon, right? Yeah, maybe when I'm like, maybe in like three years. Yeah, yeah, there'll be a lot more to talk about in three years' <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Okay, mm. well, thanks for your questions. Are you going to go carry on with your day? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for your time. No problem. Bye. Thanks, Chloe. So to set this up for the listeners that um, are tuning in, what, what, is, uh, what is your role at the moment at, uh, at the government? Yeah, so uh, as I as I was saying, I work at the Australian government and I've been doing that for quite a, a while now. I joined government uh, almost 10 years ago to work on energy market policy. So um, initially I was advising on microeconomic issues. My background is in economics and finance and uh, I also have a master's where I did a bit of a deep dive into energy markets. So um, for my master's thesis, I constructed a financial option valuation model that looked at uh, how capital allocation decisions change with different um, policy settings related to uh, carbon emissions. So that's an area where I have a lot of interest and and education. 
Uh, so I worked on that for kind of the first half of my government career. And then I decided to switch from microeconomics into more macroeconomics. So I joined the Federal Treasury Department. And initially I was looking at uh, monetary and fiscal policy. And then I joined a unit that specialised in macrofinance. And that is an area that became quite hot after the global financial crisis, because I think at that time, a lot of people realised that maybe they hadn't paid as much attention as they should have to what impact the financial market has on the economy. And that's a, that in itself is a really interesting issue because for such a long time uh, in the economics profession, there has been a lot of debate around what is the role of the financial market and what is the role of money and, and all of that type of thing. So uh, that was where uh, I first started tracking what was happening in Bitcoin around 2017. And then I started to learn a little bit more about it and speaking with my friends that were into it and, and that type of thing. And then in early 2018, the Treasury asked me if I would do a deep dive into cryptocurrency. And then I started working on it full time. And I've been doing that ever since. And I think that how my role has evolved over the past few years is while I've been doing this deep dive into crypto and becoming obsessed with Bitcoin and trying to learn everything that I can about blockchain and what's going on, uh, I've realized that there's um, oftentimes quite a big gap in understanding between, you know, the government side, the policy advisors, the regulators and, and all of that. Um, and then also people on, uh, you know, the Bitcoin side or people uh, in the crypto world who may not understand uh, the regulatory regimes that apply, or they may not understand policy process or how to influence government and how to engage in all of that. And so I've become something of a translator where I I'm basically just trying to help each side understand the other and, and communicate uh, so that, you know, there, there can be some collaboration around what are the, uh, you know, the, the things that are not working about the regulatory regime or, you know, what is and isn't really happening, um, you know, in Bitcoin, for example, where we know that there is a constant steady stream of FUD that's always coming through and um, people often... Uh, can't distinguish signal from noise, they get the wrong idea about it. So, so I'm a translator um, primarily, and that's, that's something that uh, I've been really enjoying. And you, you're also involved with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but organizing the conference there in Australia, uh, the, the Bush Bash, is that what it's called? I am a co-host of the Bitcoin Sydney meetup. Right. Uh, we've got over a thousand members and we have loads of events. So we do a monthly meetup where we have special guests and, and panels and presentations every, uh, every fortnight. Um, afterwards, we also have a social night where we have drinks and a bit of chit chat. There's also a monthly Socratic. Uh, and then we also have just started a beginner series as well. So we've almost got an event every week now, which is quite amazing. So I co-host that with Stefan Levera and John Pratt. Um, Friar Hass, Hassman Cook um, is part of that as well. Um, and a couple of other guys who, who help with various things. So that, that I've been doing since uh, August 2020. And uh, we also have um, the, the Bitcoin Bush Bash in Australia, uh, which just started last year as well. So that's organised by... Um, 
Wizard of Oz and Hold Along Comrades um, and they have other volunteers in the community who've been helping them with that. Uh, and I'm essentially the New South Wales contact person, which doesn't really mean anything except that, you know, if, if people in, in my community want to find out, um, you know, what's going on or things like that. So I sort of helped um, put the agenda together and helped people find accommodation and little things like that. So, but it's a very grassroots conference um, and it's super organic and um, just a lot of fun because it's a, it's a tight knit community of people volunteering their skills and knowledge and, and coming to make friends. And uh, yeah, it's a, a really great initiative from those guys. You've just named some legendary Bitcoiners and a big shout out to Wizard of Oz who, who put us in touch and um, set this thing up. I mean, these guys are Bitcoin maxis. <laughs> so um, would you describe yourself as that as well? Or, you know, being being in the position that you're in, you've, you've got to keep a, kind of a, a wider eye on things and um, be more approachable or approached by um, other projects? How, how do you kind of navigate those stormy waters yeah so it is my job to keep an open mind um i couldn't really do my job properly if i uh refused to pay attention to all of the innovation and developments that are happening in the space um i do need to stay on top of all of that so in addition to keeping up to date with bitcoin developments and news i do also keep up to date with things that are happening um, in Ethereum, for example, and other blockchains as well. Uh, and it's actually quite interesting because I think um, one of the best ways to learn is to look at counterfactuals and look at contrast. And I think that uh, when I started to first learn about um, the space, I was asked to look um, specifically at initial coin offerings. So I looked at, at those um, probably a bit more deeply then I looked at Bitcoin initially and I didn't really start diving deep into Bitcoin until my second year that I was doing full-time crypto. And I think that regardless of what excites you about the space or the industry, everybody should start with Bitcoin. That's the advice that I always give to people. Uh, Bitcoin does exactly what's advertised on the box. It's here now and it works and it's delivering. And if you can understand all the different things that are special about Bitcoin, why it works and why it matters, I think you've got to get across, you know, a bit of the economics, a bit of the technology. You've got to think about the game theory, the incentives, and you, you've got to be willing to learn and also to unlearn a lot. And I think that that humility and curiosity will get you very far. And once you've got that solid foundation, then you can go and look at other blockchains or other projects and you'll have something to compare them back to that kind of anchors you to a framework of something that already works. Because a lot of the other protocols that I've looked at have been quite experimental or still are experimental or, you know, they don't necessarily um, do everything that they advertise. And we know there are a lot of scams and vaporware in the industry as well. And that makes it really challenging for people because they don't know uh, necessarily how to separate, um, you know, what is actually innovative from what is just marketing. Uh, so I think it's really challenging for people to navigate the space. And I do worry that, um, you know, there there's a lot of risk associated with that. Uh, so, you know, for me personally, I think uh, it, it helps me 
whatever different project I'm looking at, it all helps me to learn and helps me to understand, you know, how you basically think about what you're trading off in every design choice. Um, you know, people criticize Bitcoin for being too slow or whatever. Bitcoin has scalability solutions. Um, it's just a matter of whether you shove them in at layer one or layer two, um, you know, whereas another blockchain might be optimized for speed or optimized for something else. But what they trade off for that is security or decentralization. So it really comes down to what is it that you value? Uh, what is it that you're trying to optimize for? And all these different protocols really are targeting different use cases. I think that what's quite elegant about Bitcoin is that the use case is very simple and everything around the ecosystem is targeted at being really good um, at that one use case, which is the, the store of value. And it has these neat utilities tacked onto it, like the fact that you can send with near instant settlement a payment, you know, peer-to-peer -peer anywhere around the world uh, with settlement assurance, you know, for a very low cost, um, that, that's fantastic. So Bitcoin is a payments network it is peer-to-peer -peer cash, um, but it is not just a payment rail. You know, it is this scarce property. Um, and there's a long, long history in uh, economics and in our civilization of that kind of money. Um, you know, money was not always a commodity. So I think we do have frameworks to understand what Bitcoin is, but at the same time, it is new and it is unique. And the invention of digital scarcity is really profound. Yeah. And, oh man, there's so much I want to ask you about. First of all, um, unlearning, because you, you were very, very well educated and in finance and economics and the, the, the microeconomics. And when Bitcoin comes along, you said you have to be open to unlearning. That, that, that process can be very difficult because it's almost an attack on the time that you've spent putting into that work in the past and then coming to the realization that, oh man, <laughs> that's all wrong. Did, did you feel that way? Or what, what were the emotions you were going through when you, you started after being mandated to look into you know, Bitcoin and blockchain and whatever else and all of it started unraveling in front of your eyes and all of that, uh, the, the time and energy that you'd put into your, your past uh, career and education. Could you just talk us through that process? I mean, no one dives deep down this rabbit hole and comes out the other side the same person. <laughs> it, it was a roller coaster ride. Um, I, I had one friend, um, Katan, who he, he partners up with Stefan for Ministry of Nodes, and he was the first person who really tried to sell me on Bitcoin. And for a long time, I just thought he had gone mad and I could not relate to anything that he was saying. We both went to the same uni together. Um, we've known each other since we were quite young. And, uh, you know, I, at some point he started speaking a different language and I felt like I, I, I couldn't speak the language. And so I, I think that, um, you know, there were a couple of light bulb moments for me. Uh, one was that, uh, you know, I think for uh, a lot of the people who are interested in um, Austrian economics and sound money and, and those sorts of topics, I think um, they use a very different definition of inflation and what 
inflation means to what a Keynesian or neoclassical economist would use. So, uh, you know, that's something that's become quite a popular discourse in the Twitter community, for example, where people are always now making references to CPI, the consumer price index, and that is the main index that central banks use to track inflation. But what they're talking about there is an increase in an index of prices um, where that index is a basket of common goods and services that you might buy. But that is not the same as the expansion of the actual money supply. And, you know, so my friend Katan would be talking about, you know, inflations through the roof and all these types of things. And I would just think, but CPI is at zero. Like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, there are a few um, miscommunications like that at a fundamental layer where if you don't realise that you're actually using different definitions or using different economic models or, or using um, incompatible frameworks or models, it's very hard to have a conversation. And, and I think that it does take a little bit of um, persistence and investigation to realise that, that that is what's causing the miscommunication and then go, okay, well, now I have to put all of these models aside and learn a new model. And the thing that kept driving me absolutely crazy is I started to meet all of these people who were super toxic Bitcoiners, but they were really intelligent engaging people and I just wanted to know why do all these really smart people have this obsession and I don't understand what they understand then there's something that I'm missing and I just want to see what they see just so that I can scratch this itch uh you know what is it that I don't get and I just didn't stop investigating until I figured it out and now I can see that yeah people are having these conversations where they're talking completely past each other and so I really empathize with the, the criticism that, you know, it will be these classically trained economists and finance guys who will be the last ones on board because it is so much hard work to, to kind of, um, yeah, put aside all of your training, put aside all of your experience. And I've spent years working side by side with macro guys and Keynesians and central bankers every day. And, you know, it's, it's very, um, it's very interesting to hear how, uh, you know, people have these really strongly held convictions that are just completely opposing views. And, you know, I think that fundamentally economics is a social science and economics, economists have been arguing since the invention of the profession about money. Uh, you know, we have all these different models and over time it's continued to shift. The definitions have continued to be rewritten. And I had a research project that I did in 2016 where I spent six months going back and looking a bit into the history of money. And, you know, these things are never settled. Um, you know, in, money is always evolving. And, you know, I, I, I've heard someone say as well that um, technology has always disrupted money. Um, and I like that framing of Bitcoin. I think that it, if you if you take a longer term view, um, hundreds of years or even thousands of years, it's so much easier to place Bitcoin than if you're only thinking about a post Bretton Woods era where fiat is all that we've known. Uh, because if you only think about um, Bitcoin in the context of, you know, the definition of money is fiat and all of our models have numerators and, you know, we've lost this concept of um, 
of money as a commodity and all these types of things, or money as a token, which there's a very long history of money as a token, um, then I think that you're obviously going to have a harder time, but not many people know about the history of money or the history of economics, or even the fact that there are different schools of thought in, in economics. And I think fundamentally, there are so many really important principles and axioms that all economists do agree on. And economics is a really powerful tool. And I wish that it would be taught in every school and that everybody would study it to some degree. Um, particularly in microeconomics. I think there's some really fantastic things that you can learn there about incentives um, and how markets work and, and that type of thing, which is so powerful. And, you know, because people don't have that understanding, that's why they get trapped in energy fud and, and other things. But I think that it's when we get to macroeconomics and money and finance and the relationship between the financial markets and and the real economy, that's where the economists, I think, then really start to disagree and they break off into these different camps. And, uh, you know, the, the prevailing view today is, um, you know, I guess it's what we call neoclassical or, or, you know, everybody says that since the GFC, we're all Keynesians, um, you know, but I think that, you know, I don't feel like I unlearned everything, but I think that it was, it was more that uh, I had to get to some point of, understanding why I was misunderstanding and recognizing that it was because I needed to swap in and out um, a few different frameworks and models until I found the dictionary that allowed me to to grasp the language. I can't imagine what a day walking in your shoes must be like because so many of us on in this space and you know on Bitcoin Twitter we feel as though we're walking around in the matrix all day long because we see something completely different to everybody else. But you are so close to the proverbial spigot. You're, you're surrounded by people that, you know, it's their jobs to look into these policies and make these regulations and uh, do deep dives on them and, and have their opinions and try and make themselves heard and try and push their careers forward and whatever else. You just must be walking around like thinking, oh my God, Bitcoin fixes everything, but why won't these guys see it? It must be so crazy to, uh, I, I don't know if you're still in lockdown, but you know, I, I, I'm trying to imagine you like walking around the office and, and hearing all of these Keynesian economics swirling around your mind. Um, what, what, what's it like? It, it must be, you, you must want to just scream sometimes. <laughs> uh, I feel that, uh, I have a lot of empathy for people who are struggling uh, because I struggled for so long. And I think that uh, it really takes a lot of time and dedication to get across everything that you need to learn to really appreciate the genius that is Bitcoin. And so unless you're, you know, kind of a freak and you're willing to spend all of your time on it, um, it's, it's not really possible to learn all of this stuff if, you know, you're just doing your nine to five and you read a few articles here and there and, you know, you go, like, you really need to become obsessed with it, I think. Because um, it changes, you know, the, it changes as well so quickly and how are you supposed to keep up with all of the FUD and all of the developments and all the, there's constantly like new hardware, new software, all these things. Um, so I guess, um, you know, my primary response is, yeah, one of empathy, but I do certainly have moments of frustration where I feel like I'm a broken record. I'm saying the same thing all the time. 
you know, often to the same people and I feel like they are really struggling to integrate uh, that knowledge or that information um, into their their mental model. And, you know, so it, it does um, keep me up at night, you know, trying to think, you know, how, how can I contribute to everybody's collective knowledge and understanding, um, including the people that I work with. Um, and so I have run some workshops and, um, and put on some talks and, and connected uh, different experts and different people in um, the policy community and, and, and the industry. That is a big part of my role. Um, and certainly I aim to share as much of my knowledge as possible. And I think that, um, you know, ultimately it probably does just come back to um, personality and incentives. I was very lucky because I was asked to work on this full time. And then, uh, you know, that exposed me to a lot of um, the, the primary thought leaders in, in Bitcoin. Um, and I was able to learn off all of these experts and I had access to them. So that's an enormous privilege that I had. Um, and it still took me a fair bit of time. Uh, you know, if you're an average person who isn't asked to look into this and you don't have that um, knowledge of who to call or who to ask questions to or, um, you know, how, how to differentiate signal from noise, then I can imagine it, you know, it would take a much longer time. So I think that, you know, incentives then come into play and number go up is a very powerful incentive. Uh, but at the moment we have number go up in a lot of different assets and people are getting quite confused and quite distracted. Um, you know, it makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Uh, some of the stuff that I'm seeing at the moment where we have, you know, a huge amount of speculation um, that, you know, really isn't matched to, I think, um, the underlying assets. And uh, that that does worry me. And I think that uh, there, there needs to be um, some responsibility taken as well by, uh, you know, the the industry. And, and that is something that I've been clear about um, in my consultations with stakeholders. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, all of the noise that's generated um, and all of the attention and the media, uh, you know, it continues to onboard people into, um, the people who have that curious personality into, all right, well, I actually really want to understand the substance of what this is. I want to pull it apart and put it back together again. And uh, so, you know, I think for those people, the situation is improving all the time because there is so much information available. It's just a matter of making sure that you stumble across, across the information that's actually informed. Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask you a little bit about the banter that you must face from the lads when you're... Um, you know, talking Bitcoin with them because uh, the, the guys that you mentioned are legendary um, Bitcoiners, like I said, and just the Aussie style is to have a bit of banter. And I'm sure it's great fun at these meetups. They are, are they kind of like dragging you across the coals because you're you're inside the institution sort of thing. I mean, like Stefan is very much a libertarian thinking kind of guy, but yet you guys are co-hosting a meetup. This is awesome. I think it's brilliant. I'd love to come along to one of these things. Could, uh, yeah, just give us a little insight as to um, the kind of stuff that you guys, the ideas that you're throwing around. Yeah, I cop a lot of flag from the guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, so Katan, I, I've known since I was about a teenager and he, he holds me to a very high standard. He can be quite tough on me, but 
you know, I owe a lot to Katan. He's really taught me a lot. And Katan and Stefan, they got me set up on my first node, uh, would have been, I think, January 2020 or, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and, yeah, they've just really taught me so much and been incredibly generous. And, um, yeah, Stefan and I have had heaps of disagreements um, and we, yeah, we have one um, coming up. Sometimes we don't have time. <laughs> but um, I think where Stefan and I usually disagree is um, I think he uh, oftentimes thinks that um, it's not worth engaging in policy process. Um, whereas I say that, um, you know, you, you should always try to educate and influence people. Um, so Stefan loves to educate people and he's very good at it, um, but he focuses his energy more on educating um, new coiners and that type of thing and also educating Bitcoiners who want to advance their knowledge with um, his podcast, which is a little bit more specialised than some of the other education that he does. He also lectures um, at the university that we graduated from. So um, he's got his niche and I, and I respect that. And some of the other guys in the group, I think at different times have um, found it, I, I guess, a little bit confronting that, um, you know, part of my role, as I've said, is, you know, I, I represent the entire range of views of everybody in the industry. And my job is to understand what all of those perspectives are and translate them back to government. And so, um, you know, I think that there sometimes can be a little bit of a simplistic view where people say, well, um, you know, why can't we just tell government that Bitcoin's the only thing that matters? The reality is that, you know, these other protocols exist and people are investing in them and people are employed full time in them and people are building things on them. And most of the stuff that's built or created um, will probably fail. And, you know, that's the nature of what it is. Uh, but I don't know that it's necessarily going away and I don't know that it's um, tenable to go to uh, a, a policy discussion and say, well, all of these other things exist, but our position is that they shouldn't exist. Um, and so I think sometimes where uh, my view is a bit different to some of the um, other co-hosts is my view is that um, it's probably a waste of time to get too worked up about what other protocols or things are being built in the space because they actually don't compete with Bitcoin. They have nothing to do with Bitcoin. They couldn't be less relevant to Bitcoin. Um, if you want to kind of think about, you know, quote unquote crypto, like what, what that actually means, I, I don't think that grouping all of these things together is actually going to enlighten anyone because what you have with Bitcoin, and this is not a government view. This is just how I think about it. Um, what you have with Bitcoin is it, it's competing with other stores of value. Um, so, you know, uh, I think a big meme in Bitcoin is the idea that it is digital gold. And now it's um, around 10% of the gold market cap. And, you know, then, you know, Preston and other guys talk about um, encroaching on bonds and, uh, and that type of thing. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but when you look at, uh, you know, say a protocol like Ethereum, that's not competing as a store of value. That is not a diversification from Bitcoin or a diversification from gold or bonds. I think um, if you were going to pose an investment thesis for ETH, you would say that it's actually a diversification from technology stocks. It's, it's an equity diversification because 
um, it's a bet that more and more software is going to be built on the Ethereum platform. And in order for that to happen, um, people will need gas um, for transactions and smart contracts, and that will generate demand for ETH. And if you think that demand will outstrip supply, you have an investment thesis for why ETH may rise in value. Um, and obviously there's a lot of uncertainty and controversy around um, whether that thesis actually plays out or not. But Ethereum as a project is not as advanced as Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I said earlier that Bitcoin is as described on the box. It, do it does what it says. It, it delivers what it promises. The protocol is more or less ossified. Obviously, we have the Taproot upgrade coming, which is incredibly exciting. Um, but Ethereum has some major structural reforms that still need to be implemented. And there's a huge amount of risk in the ecosystem. And we see failures in the ecosystem happen all the time. Um, you know, there are a lot of smart, talented, driven people who are putting a lot of effort into that, but it's very experimental um, when you compare it to Bitcoin and it's not a diversification that I think is relevant. Uh, so from my pers perspective, I would say that when you're looking at the diversity of what we call crypto or what we call the blockchain industry, uh, you know, Bitcoin is just way over here on the other end doing its own thing. And, you know, it, it churns those blocks over every 10 minutes. And it's, you know, I think that it's a, that's why we have, you know, so much more of the um, institutional interest now because people are starting to cotton on to what it actually is and, and what it does. Um, a lot of the other protocols out there, um, you know, they, they have a long way to go if they are going to get to a point where they're going to generate that level of confidence. And, you know, there needs to be some time sunk where there is uh, reliability, performance, um, you know, and all, and all of these confidence building factors. So, you know, to, to get too upset, I think as a Bitcoiner, to get too upset that, about the fact that there are these other blockchains and these other protocols is to lose sight of, you know, what actually is exciting and what actually matters about, um, you know, the, the transformation that Bitcoin is catalyzing in, in financial markets and in the economy and the opportunity that exists there. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, that that's kind of my perspective. I just don't feel offended by these other projects um, because they're just playing in a completely different field. Cool. It'd be great to, um, yeah, like I said, it'd be great to get over there and, and hang out with you guys and have some beers and, and get into these discussions because I can imagine the banter um, one day, one day, obviously, when we're all up in the air again. Definitely. We obviously have a big worry um, in the space that, the, you know, a government might shut down Bitcoin or that we'll have the power to shut down Bitcoin or... Maybe we're looking at this the, the wrong way now. Talking to you a little bit has made me realize what if there's like another hundred Chloe's around the world that have been given this mandate a couple of years ago to go down that Bitcoin rabbit hole and have come to the same conclusions you have and are now I don't know, like a sleeper within, you know, the, uh, within the structure, having the same discussions you're having with um, your colleagues and counterparts and, and trying to, you know, distill your knowledge of, have you come across your, your, you know, American clone or British clone or, you know, around the world? Uh, is there a network there that we, we, we might not even know about? 
I am so glad that you asked me that question because one of the most common misconceptions that I hear from Bitcoiners is that the government hates them and that central bankers care about them. They don't. Central bankers don't care about Bitcoin. <laughs> like, I think that, you know, the this whole idea that um, Bitcoin should be a threat to, you know, central banks because it's going to it's going to take all the store of value out of fiat doesn't really make sense if you think about the way in which people actually store value um, and, and what money, how money functions for the average person. So to break that down a bit, how let's um, take Australia as um, an example, but I, you know, I think that uh, most economies, um, most um, countries that your audience is probably from would operate in the same way. So in Australia, um, people generally do not store their wealth in cash. Um, there was a study done by one of the banks uh, not too long ago that the average Australian wouldn't have like $500 in an emergency. People don't hold cash. How Australians primarily store their value is um, in property, um, in, in shares, investments, financial investments. Um, they may have a small business that they run and have equity in that business. Um, and also in Australia, we have compulsory 401k, which we call superannuation. And it is an absolutely enormous pool of funds. It's one of the biggest um, pools of savings in the world. So that's where the average Australian is storing their value. So when we talk about, um, you know, people who are wanting to store their wealth in Bitcoin, um, or they may perceive it as an investment, uh, what, what that means is that they are actually uh, diversifying out of maybe an ETF or, or whatever they may be um, investing in and making an allocation to Bitcoin. That doesn't actually change the amount of cash that they have on balance at the bank. So... I don't think that this story that Bitcoin is going to take down the banks because everyone's going to pull their money out really makes sense um, because you can't have a bank run if you don't keep money in the bank in the first place, um, you know. And I think that the other thing to consider is so long as people are receiving their wages in fiat and paying their bills in fiat, their unit of account, it will remain in fiat. Uh, so... You know, I think even if you get to the stage where most or all of your net worth is in Bitcoin, if you're if you're a high conviction, diamond hand, cyber hornet, and you know you're all in or even leverage, it doesn't necessarily mean that your mental unit of account is in Bitcoin because when you walk around an Australian supermarket and the can of tuna is in Australian dollars, and you know the bottle of milk is in Australian dollars and all these things, you're not going to necessarily be constantly converting every price into another currency. It's too uncomfortable for your mind. Like I remember uh, when I moved back to Australia after I'd been living in Europe for a couple of years, um, the strange feeling that I had walking around the Australian supermarket and having to translate everything into euros for a while because I could only get a sense of the purchasing power of my money if I was thinking in euros. And I, I, it took me a couple of months to adjust back to my mental unit of account changing back to Australian dollars. 
And it wasn't something that I had to put effort into. It happened naturally because of my salary and my bills all being denominated in that unit. Um, just as how if, you, if you're if you someone at the moment who primarily stores value in, in property, uh, you know, every time you make a purchase, um, you're not thinking, oh, well, what percentage of my property is this worth? Or, you know, it, it's just not how our brains work. Um, so I think that to the extent that, um, you know, Bitcoin would pose a threat to the banks or pose a threat to fiat or the central banks, um, I don't really think that um, the the argument is very compelling. Um, there would need to be something um, much more structural to, that would have to take place for that kind of scenario to feel feasible. And so the government um, and central banks around the world are already very comfortable with the idea that people store their value in these private assets. That is already the case. So, you know, why would Bitcoin be any different? It's just another uncorrelated asset from that point of view. Um, and so you can absolutely think about Bitcoin as money, as a monetary commodity, um, and you can, there are historical um, corollaries for that. Um, so that that's not an unreasonable way of classifying Bitcoin, but to extrapolate that out to say that it undermines um, the entire fiat system, I don't know that that is necessarily the case. And Sailor's touched on this a few times, um, <clears throat> pushing the case that you know Bitcoin is an asset, is classed as, as an asset rather than a currency. Therefore, that's why um, the governments aren't that particularly worried about it, it would seem. Well, you can have Bitcoin be a store of value without it being a unit of account. Uh, you can also have Bitcoin as a store of value without it necessarily being um, a predominant medium of exchange. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't need to be all or nothing. Um, and if you look back at, again, coming to the history of money, uh, there have been monies in history that have had what we call intrinsic value, um, which are the commodity monies. There have been monies that have just been ledgers and IOUs, but they were analog ledgers. They were not DLT. Uh, you know, so their money has had a lot of different forms. It has had private issuance. It has had public issuance. It has been backed. It has been unbacked. Um, so, you know, I think you can certainly construct a model for Bitcoin that says it is money. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a zero-sum game here where Bitcoin is directly competing with the fiat system. And I see a lot of potential uh, for, you know, an integration to occur that, yeah, it doesn't um, necessarily result in this doomsday scenario where, you know, everything that we know today is, is going to collapse. And this will bring us nicely on to the uh, question around tax, which a lot of people have, you know, great, uh, great concerns about. Uh, you know, if they've been storing their wealth in this highly risky asset over the last however many years, uh, which is deemed, I mean, to us now, it's, it's not risky at all. It's riskier to be in the other stuff, right? But uh, we have that level of conviction. But to 95% of the, uh, the, the rest of the investing population and whoever else you speak to, they think you're crazy and that's the riskiest thing they've ever seen. Um, when it comes to uh, figuring out the the next 
wave of taxation and policies that are going to um, be heading our way as we move into a digital economy. Obviously, we have fears that there, there could be a repeat of uh, the 6102 um, gold um, policy in, uh, in the United States back in the 30s where they confiscated gold. Does this kind of discussion ever come up? And is that kind of on your mind? Anything that you've kind of like uh, seen alarm bells or are we all just, should we take the tin hats off and, and rest a little easier as Bitcoiners and enjoy the ride a little bit more? What, what's the kind of feel that you get? Yeah, I, I don't worry about those kinds of scenarios. I think that um, if you look at the statements that have been put out by some of the international regulatory bodies, um, the, the types of issues that they're interested in in this space are, you know, are primarily stable coins, not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the least concern because Bitcoin is so clearly not a security. It's not a financial product. Um, different countries classify it in different ways. In Australia, it's classified as property. Um, in some other countries, it might be classified as private money or a commodity or whatever the case may be. But how Bitcoin came to life is incredibly interesting. It was never sold to anyone. Uh, the primary issuance of Bitcoin uh, was the result of mining, where essentially you opt to run a computer program and you receive these digital tokens in exchange. Uh, there's, there's no um, central body. Um, there's no sense of pooling of funds to undergo a venture. You know, these are kind of some of the common um, tests in, in the Howey test, which is the U.S., um, rule for determining whether something is a security and there are equivalents in other countries that are quite similar. Um, Australia has an incredibly broad definition of what is a financial product. The UK has a slightly narrower definition than the Australian one. Um, but all of these jurisdictions have some way of assessing, uh, you know, what are the properties of an asset? And if it falls under the category uh, financial product, then there are lots of rules and regulations and licenses that you need and, and, and different things to be aware of as the issuer or the seller of that asset. Um, Bitcoin is on very safe ground. Um, when you get into a lot of the other coins and tokens that were created, um, and this was you know, one of the big issues that I was investigating in the ICO boom, uh, then suddenly there's all of this uncertainty around, well, now you have um, a, a governing body with a C-suite team and they're wanting to build a platform and they're raising funds from retail investors to do that. And, and you know, there's, there's a transaction that's happening and um, suddenly you have something that starts to look a lot like a security. And so coming back to the US, the way that the SEC has responded is they have made examples of a few pretty big ICOs there and um, other regulators around the world have sent a very clear message to the market that if you want to raise funds from retail investors, you need a license. Um, because when you raise funds from retail investors, um, you know, for the purpose of a venture, that that is a financial product. And it's not always very clear or very easy to interpret financial product law or securities law. But I think that you know, the, the types of issues that policymakers and regulators are pouring energy into um, are those issues around, you know, what, 
what happens when you have this whole wave of um, new products um, coming online that they do seem to resemble financial products, um, but maybe they have the characteristics of multiple types of securities or, um, you know, they are constructed in some way that is novel um, or they may have new business models that are different to traditional business models like a DAO, for example. So those are the questions that uh, policymakers and regulators are investigating. There isn't really anything left to look at with Bitcoin because the case is settled. It is what it is and it's out there and it has a tax policy and, and that's it. So, you know, I think uh, Bitcoiners are a little bit too paranoid. They have this idea that government and central banks and regulators are thinking about them way more than they actually are. Um, it's just, you know, that's, again, that's the simplicity, the elegance, the beauty of Bitcoin is that you know exactly what it is and there's not really anything else to kind of worry about. So, yeah, I don't, I definitely don't um, spend too much time thinking about 6102. I mean, at the same time, you know, I live in a country where the government is generally fairly happy for people to, you know, invest in whatever they want to. Um, and the financial product laws and all of those licenses exist to protect people from being too easily separated from their wealth and their savings. So, um, you know, maybe um, in some more authoritarian regimes, there is a more of a genuine concern. And I and I have a lot of empathy for, for that. And I think that, uh, you know, to the extent that um, people living under more oppressive regimes, um, you know, are learning how to self-custody and are learning um, how they can be financially sovereign and independent uh, from having their wealth stolen. Uh, you know, there, there are so many great stories about um, Bitcoin and how it's enabled human rights around the world. There are stories from pretty much nearly every continent, um, if you if you follow Alex Gladstein, who I'm a huge fan of. Uh, so, you know, I that's something that I think... Um, it, I wouldn't dismiss um, and, and, and I wouldn't want to have um, Alex accuse me of having Western privilege, uh, but, you know, for probably uh, like most of the people that we know, I think uh, it, the concerns may be a little bit overblown. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's not really um, a conversation that I have, that I have heard around the hallway or anything like that. That's a nice big sigh of relief then. Um, but Yeah. I, I want to ask as well, is is it the same in Australia as it would be in the US, for example, where you have the, the Federal Reserve and the government are completely disconnected? Uh, you have the RBA, is that correct? We have the RBA. So uh, the RBA is independent from the government. Where the RBA gets its mandate from is from legislation that uh, is passed by parliament. And where we have these kind of independent authorities in um, the, the financial markets and the money markets, um, ministers are in a position where they can uh, write to the heads of these agencies with um, what's called a statement of expectations, which kind of clarifies um, the mandate of the agency um, in a way that extends on its legislated mandate um, that sets out the boundaries of, of what it's expected to do. Um, and so the RBA, um, has a mandate. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, with a lot of these types of institutions, they have a very um, clear and front of mind understanding of what they are there to do and what is also outside of their remit and where they don't want to step outside of that. So uh, it is independent, uh, but it's, uh, it's not, um, it's not 
you know, 100% separate in the sense that the government has, um, you know, zero ability to influence its direction, um, where we have these kind of legislative um, empowerments and things. And what's the the policy decisions been like, uh, you know, recently? Have they been following the lead of the US, and are printing as much money into the system over there as they are in the US or in, in Europe as well? Australia's a little bit different um, to North America and Europe. So uh, we didn't have a severe recession after the global financial crisis. Uh, we had a, a big trade boom with China at the time, um, and they are still our major trading partner. Uh, and we also didn't have as much exposure to securitized mortgages as some banks did internationally. So Australia fared quite well relative to the rest of the world during that period. And so uh, the Australian um, central bank never actually enacted QE um, at the time that a lot of the other major central banks did. And so it wasn't until the COVID pandemic that um, the central bank here started to use some monetary policy tools um, that other central banks had been using for some time. And from what I've seen from uh, what's happening internationally, Australia's money supply has not expanded um, as fast as it has in other countries. I was looking at some data uh, recently and um, if you think about the money supply, how we have these different layers where it's, you know, M0, M1, M2, and, you know, a lot of the money supply is driven by credit creation, which is um, uh, one of the functions of, of the banking sector, um, credit in the Australian banking sector isn't actually uh, much higher than it was at the start of the pandemic. Um, it hasn't really changed. Uh, I think when I ran the numbers on uh, Australian uh, money supply, uh, AUD, at the end of last year for um, my Bitcoin financialization presentation that I gave, we had had an increase of 6% over uh, the last half of last year. Uh, so that I think is quite a bit lower than what we have seen internationally. Um, so yeah, we're not, we're not quite in the same position. Uh, and I think that the, the signals from our central bank have been quite clear for a long time that um, the expectation of our central bank is that uh, there are a range of monetary policy tools that they use um, and they use them uh, to try to fulfill their mandate. Um, but that is not a, um, that is not a bulletproof solution to economic health. Um, and there are a lot of things that you need um, to, to have a, a, a healthy, strong, sustainable economy, um, you know, and people are very focused on monetary policy, but that's, that's just one part of the puzzle. So, yeah, I think um, it is It is also interesting to consider that um, because Australia is a small open economy where we have huge volumes of trade, um, our interest rates and inflation and exchange rates, these things are all interlinked and they're also very influenced by what is happening in the global economy. Um, so one piece of research that I did about five years ago was looking at the impact of US interest rates on Australia. And because the US has so much gravity in the global economy, when the US Fed makes decisions that filter through its kind of interest rate stack, if you think about how interest rates are, are transferred through different layers of the financial market, um, 
you have a kind of reference rate, which is the US Treasury 10-year. And that 10-year yield is kind of like the benchmark rate for really all economic activity in the world. And you can see that in the Australian case um, when you if you if you sort of run a regression to, to see, um, you know, what is the relationship there? Um, so much of the movement in Australian interest rates um, is correlated with movements in the US Treasury 10-year. And so there's a lot that happens with the purchasing power of the Australian dollar that is actually not a result of decisions taken by Australian policymakers or regulators. Um, you know, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, globally, there's been a lot of discussion over a long period of time about the so-called currency wars and countries that are intentionally trying to devalue their currencies because they want to be more competitive in international trade and that type of thing. Um, and so there's always, I think, a bit of concern for um, different people around, well, I want my country's currency to weaken because I'm an exporter or I want my country's currency to strengthen because I want to go on a holiday um, and those types of things. So how people experience those fluctuations in exchange rate and how they perceive them will very much depend on are they an importer or an exporter? Are they, uh, are they in debt or are they a saver? Um, do they want interest rates to go up and down? You know, same kind of thing. So, uh, you know, I think that there are kind of trade-offs um, for all of these different decisions. And so, uh, you know, ultimately it comes down to what do you think is the priority? What do you think you're optimizing for? Um, and clearly, um, you know, what I think a lot of governments around the world are targeting at the moment is the targeting economic stimulus. Uh, but when everybody is stimulating at the same time through monetary policy tools, then that's where you start to see that, uh, you know, it, it becomes a game of relative valuations um, and capital will flow to the extent that it is freely able to um, according to how it wants to take advantage of those relative changes in, in prices and positions. Uh, fiscal stimulus is something that um, is separate from, from monetary stimulus. Um, fiscal stimulus is more to do with the elected government taking on debt and then spending in order to stimulate um, through economic activity. So that is quite a different transmission channel for stimulus. And, um, you know, so I think sometimes as well, people get a little bit confused when they talk about um, governments printing money um, that they, they may not necessarily clarify whether they're thinking about fiscal tools or, or monetary tools. But that's another um, big debate that I think was more um, of an issue in the immediate aftermath of the GFC, where there were some countries that were um, practicing austerity and some countries that were practicing stimulus. And so a lot of the debate um, that was happening was not happening on the monetary policy side, it was happening on the side of fiscal. So um, that's kind of another, uh, another factor there as well. And the relationship between the two is something very interesting to consider. So you mentioned there the, the presentation that you gave about the financialization of, of Bitcoin. And it was that presentation that Wizard of Oz was very impressed with and the reason he thought this would be a great idea to get you on the show. So what was that presentation uh, about? It's about you know where you see the roadmap for, for Bitcoin uh, and how it's going to play out and all the different kind of, um, what's, to use your terminology, stacks will, will start to, to pl um, play out. Uh, could, could you just give us an overview? Uh, you don't have to give us the full one and a half hour with slides. And 
Yeah, there were a couple of things that inspired me to give that presentation. I think one is that uh, some of the guys in the group, uh, uh, I think, had this really strong view that um, the banking system had no value. And so I wanted to try and show people that actually financial markets exist for really important reasons and they perform really important functions in the real economy. Um, so the first half of my presentation is, was about what is the role of the financial market and why is it important that we have financial markets? And then the other thing that I was really inspired by was um, the, the lightning pools white paper. Um, when lightning pools was announced, I thought it was quite profound and I got incredibly excited about it. And I just spent a few days just obsessed with it because um, what it essentially does is that it creates a native risk-free rate within the Bitcoin ecosystem. And that's just so remarkable because when you have a risk-free rate or a benchmark rate, um, you have a base layer to your interest rate stack and that the interest rate stack reflects all of the market's conclusions about prices and risk and opportunity cost and trade-offs, you know, to allocate capital. And that is what drives, uh, you know, growth in different sectors of the economy. And, and so it's really quite um, foundational. And so what I did in my second half of my presentation was I then um, talked about what it means to have a risk-free rate and how you could imagine that a financial market that is just as sophisticated as um, the one that we have now could be rebuilt or replicated on top of a Bitcoin native risk-free yield. And so uh, really, uh, I think the kind of um, the conclusion to all of that is um, if you envision Bitcoin playing, uh, you know, this important role in capital allocation in the future, um, then you do actually want, um, you know, this kind of building of this financial market. And, you know, I, I really like thinking about, about it in terms of a stack, because if you think about the way that price signals are transmitted through to the end users of capital in the economy now, um, that transmission, it does happen in a layered way. Um, you know, money is um, sourced at the central bank. Um, it, there's, there's a money market, there's a wholesale layer, there is, um, you know, relationships between um, institutional banks and businesses and you have, you have the retail layer as well. And alongside that stack, you also have physical infrastructure and payments infrastructure that is also layered. So you have a money layer a payment layer um, and running through all of that, you have these, these interest rates where each level that you move up through, you get a premium. A little bit of premium gets added every time. So uh, I think for some um, Bitcoiners who are really interested in, um, you know, the Cantillon effect, they could sort of already imagine what I'm talking about, but I don't mean to make a controversial point. I just, I really think that it's so intuitive um, to approach this like a stack. And so if you are going to have um, all of those different financial products and services that grease the wheels of allocation decisions at a wholesale layer, at a small business layer, at an individual layer, then you need to build all of the infrastructure that facilitates that. And that's why 
lightning is very cool in and of itself. And, you know, the, I think the original vision for lightning is for a retail payment layer. But now when we're getting into things like lightning pools, um, we're building out other layers of the, of the money stack. Um, so I just, I just think it's really interesting and exciting to see how that evolves. Have you read uh, Nick's book, Nick Bartier's book, Layered Money, yet? Yeah, I read it last week, actually. And I think that um, he, he does um, have a similar way of thinking about some of these issues as to how I think about them. Uh, obviously, his book is a bit more on um, kind of historical events. Um, yeah, so I think um, if you look at how financial system works today, how the payment system works today, um, which I think, you know, Nick Carter and Jack Mallers would be well across that. But, uh, you know, payment systems sound boring, but they're, they're actually really interesting um, if you want to dive down the payments rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think like the, the idea that, you know, the reason why we have all these layers is not because we have complexity for the sake of complexity. It's not because the world is just full of rent seekers and middlemen. It's because people have different needs and their needs change over time. Their needs are different to the needs of businesses, um, you know, and there are all of these, uh, there are all of these um, information asymmetries that we're trying to uh, close out with um, these different layers. Then you can maybe hopefully get a sense that um, when financial markets work well, um, they're really incredibly important. And my favorite example of this is um, when Ray Dalio was early on in Bridgewater, I think it was in the early 80s, he constructed a derivative solution that enabled McDonald's to launch the McNugget. And if it wasn't for his construction of derivatives, the McNugget may not have ever come into existence. Um, so, you know, that's a really simple and powerful example of how, you know, all of these complex financial products that we tend to think of as just being for speculation or, you know, finance for the sake of finance, um, you know, that the reason why they were created was to solve problems for, uh, you know, real businesses. And um, so I think if anyone wants to Google um, McNugget Bridgewater <laughs> and read about that story, um, I think it illustrates the point quite well. And that's a perfect segue. Thank you for setting that up, whether you realized it or not. But uh, you, you did send me a message uh, a week or two back just after we were getting around to sorting this out. Uh, and you referenced the podcast that uh, uh, Preston and I had uh, been talking about why we couldn't figure out, you know, why the big end of town, as, as you named it in, in perfect Aussie kind of uh, slang, why the big end of town aren't, aren't getting involved in Bitcoin or aren't seeing the opportunity. And, you know, Ray's a perfect example. Uh, what is your thoughts around that? Because you, you, you laid them out to me in, a, in an email, but I'd like for you to, to share them with the listeners. What, what's going on there, do you think? What's the mental block? Yeah, I, I don't think that there is necessarily a mental block. Um, I think that, you know, the common refrain circulating around uh, Twitter at the moment is, at what point do wealth advisors and institutions uh, come into breach of their fiduciary responsibility because they're not getting into Bitcoin or they're not helping other people get into Bitcoin? The reality is probably that it is actually because people have fiduciary responsibilities and regulatory obligations that they actually are taking a really long time uh, to get to where um, 
you might think that they would otherwise be. Uh, so to break that down a little bit, um, let's talk about uh, financial licensing as an example. So when you apply to obtain a financial license, that's not a generic thing. Uh, in the Australian regulatory regime, you have to specify what type of financial license you're going to maintain. And so there are different types of financial products. And so you might say, well, I want a financial license for this particular um, product or service. And then you can operate within that remit. However, if the law or the regulatory regime um, doesn't have, say, Bitcoin as a defined asset class, because as we already discussed, Bitcoin is not a financial product by law, um, then how can you obtain a financial license for something that is not a financial product? It, it doesn't make sense. So if you can't get a financial license for Bitcoin because Bitcoin is not a financial product, then you can't go to your clients and start advising them on Bitcoin because that's outside of your license. So it doesn't matter if you're the most orange-pilled person, um, you are not going to risk having your license taken away to start shilling Bitcoin to everybody, even if you want to. Uh, you know, and then similarly, thinking about this from you know, the, the institutional side, so uh, it may on the surface seem quite strange that we have um, these 401ks, these superannuation funds who put so much money into bonds, for example, but they have all of these obligations that mean that they are trying to optimise for certain outcomes within constraints that mean that they can only take on a certain amount of risk. And so the, re the return that they might get on that level of risk um, may decline uh, for, for whatever reasons. Um, but they don't have carte blanche to just, you know, dump all of their bonds and throw it all into Bitcoin. Um, you know, that, that's not how it works. So, uh, you know, they, uh, they may see that they have these challenges um, and they may see that there are these opportunities, but it really takes such an extraordinarily long time to work through all of the complexity and thinking, well, um, how do we engage with the regulators? How do we find a solution to this? And, um, you know, what are the expectations of our, our stakeholders, our investors, our board, and all of these types of things? So, um, you know, I think that it's not a matter of, uh, you know, necessarily just a lack of awareness or a lack of understanding. There are so many uh, regulatory um, challenges that uh, need to be worked through. And so fiduciary responsibility is, is not something that, you know, you want to mess around with if you're someone who actually has one of these licences. And it, it does mean that, you know, sometimes you end up in a situation where, um, say, someone may have actually gotten scammed um, and, you know, bought some kind of random crypto that turned out to be uh, vaporware or whatever. And, you know, now they need to know how to get rid of it. They might go um, to someone and say, hey, well, you know, will you please help me? I want to get out of this scam. Um, they may not be able to necessarily find someone with a license who can help them. It doesn't mean that those people don't have the knowledge, um, but for legal reasons, they may not be able to help them. Um, and that's the kind of shadow side of the situation that um, we have at the moment where Bitcoin is not a financial product, but because it does not come under the financial product regime, there's all of this infrastructure that's missing. 
um, around licensing and standards. And um, so it means that, uh, you know, essentially what people are now trying to do to compensate for that um, is, you know, applying to issue ETFs, uh, you know, and, and applying to uh, run private funds and all of those types of things, because what that does is it packages Bitcoin up in a way where it actually is interoperable with the financial system, just as how the Bitcoin protocol is a collection of standards. The way that um, the financial markets work is there, there are standards, um, you know, as to how you invest and divest and, and enter into contracts and, um, you know, how money moves around. And if Bitcoin is not in a form that is interoperable with all of those standards, it's just not compatible with the infrastructure of the system. Um, so when you when you have these traditional uh, kind of formats like an ETF, which is very well understood and very well known, and you know the traditional market has uh, not only a language but also an infrastructure set up to accommodate for an ETF in a generic sense, suddenly it paves the way. It makes everything so much easier. So that's why I think a lot of people are excited about the prospect of of the ETFs that that are currently um, being looked at in the US, and you know they're online in Canada and, um, you know, I think it's something that people really see a lot of potential in because it will help to overcome this paradox where, you know, it's hard to integrate into the financial system if you don't have recognition as a financial product by law. Would you mind just giving an overview for those listening, uh, you know, what, what an ETF is if, if people aren't, you know, too sure on what that, how that vehicle works? Uh, so an ETF is a really convenient way to get exposure to assets without having to hold the underlying. So um, you could have, um, it's like buying, it's like buying into an index in a way. Um, it's not strictly the same, but you can sort of think of it like um, rather than having to go out and individually buy uh, a bunch of shares and a bunch of bonds and a bunch of gold and whatever you think needs to be in your portfolio, you can just invest in a single ETF product. And then the ETF manager will, will handle the, the portfolio and um, balance it and all of those types of things. So uh, in, the, in the case of Bitcoin, um, it's a little bit um, more straightforward in one way because the idea is that you just wrap this ETF infrastructure over Bitcoin as the underlying um, and that's what makes it interoperable with uh, financial licensing and, um, and the financial system. Um, I think that there would obviously be some questions around, uh, you know, Bitcoin fundamentally, Bitcoin on chain is a bearer asset. And so there are a lot of issues to consider with custody and that type of thing. Um, but these are problems that have been solved by other ETFs. ETFs are very common, well understood financial products. New ETFs are being issued all the time. Um, and there are ETFs for physical commodities. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily that these problems are extremely novel but I think because Bitcoin itself is quite novel because it does combine um, a grab bag of features from lots of different types of money over history um, and I think a lot of people have forgotten that money can be quite diverse um, you know then it is it is something that I think you know obviously we're what 12 and a half years in now you know it's taking a bit of time for everybody to get up to speed with um, how you grapple with Bitcoin as an asset um, and you know as well the regulators in the US have uh, made it very clear that they really are looking to see 
how mature is the market? Is it subject to manipulation? Um, what is what is happening, um, you know, with exchanges and traders and all of that type of thing? So, you know, at some point, um, if the regulators are satisfied that um, that all of their questions have been answered, um, you know, there'll be a lot of celebration. But I think um, the the idea of an ETF is really it's really just that um, that idea of interoperability. It's not. Um, it's not necessarily an acceptable choice for Bitcoiners who believe that, um, you know, an IOU on Bitcoin is an unacceptable way to have exposure to Bitcoin. Um, but in order for, say, uh, a retail fund to offer to offer exposure to Bitcoin. Um, that was not packaged up in this sort of ETF format, um, there would be a lot of additional considerations and, you know, possibly some, uh, you know, internal upgrades that they would need to make to their systems that would be quite expensive and quite slow and maybe not interoperable with, um, with some of their financial partners. So, you know, it's, it is certainly um, a, a much more sensible option from their point of view to uh, wait for an ETF. Because I think by the time you try to do anything other than that, um, you you would need a uh, I think a strong sense that uh, maybe everybody else was moving ahead of you and you felt concerned about falling behind the competition. I mean, I'm not I'm not really sure whether um, they would be incentivized to uh, try to upgrade their internal systems knowing that at the end the outcome would not be interoperable um so you know it's the etf i think that is why um you know there's a sense that the etf really brings a lot of opportunity into the ecosystem very cool now what game theory uh, what do you see playing out uh, we, we see it happening in the states right now certain states in the u.s are taking their um, their cities or their whole states onto a Bitcoin standard, or hoping to at least. Same thing happening yet in Australia. Have you have you got any murmurs of this? It's been quite fun watching um, competition between jurisdictions within the US. Uh, I don't think that we have had that to the same extent in Australia, but I'm also not aware that it's been playing out in Europe or really anywhere else in the world. It feels like a US specific phenomena to me. And maybe, you know, that's something to do with um, American culture. Um, but, you know, I, I really enjoy it. It makes me feel quite inspired. I think uh, certainly there is a sense of competition between nations in sectors where they feel that they have um, comparative advantage or want to compete in areas related to finance and technology. Um, I think Australia um, certainly has a sense that it is a leader in fintech um, and, it, and is quite innovative in finance and payments. Um, my personal experience um, in Australia versus the United States is I do think that Australia has a much more advanced payment system than America does. Uh, you know, and Australians have shown that they are quite tech savvy and willing to um, adopt uh, innovations in that type of technology. So we were quite early adopters of tap and go payments, for example, um, and we have been on a faster trajectory than the US in with things like phasing out checks. 
um, and those old styles of payments like, uh, you know, physical signatures for credit card payments and those types of things. So we are quite progressive when it comes to payments and fintech. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that, um, you know, is really highly valued here. Um, and so to the extent that countries around the world want to ensure that, um, you know, there is innovation happening, that um, they're adopting technology, that there is productivity um, in these different fields, um, certainly they will be watching what the rest of the world is doing and watching, of course, what the US is doing um, and, and wanting to position themselves accordingly. So certainly I think um, there is a lot of potential for the US to drive more competition in this space. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun to, to watch play out. And New York, it seemed the other day, were just, you know, offering themselves up to the altar. And even some mayors of different districts were retweeting around. It was a, <laughs> like, imagine that a year ago, right? They, they, these guys didn't even, they, they weren't even close to probably uh, thinking about Bitcoin in, in that terms, in those terms. Um, all right, last last kind of question uh, before we start to wrap it up um, if you've still got time sorry I've just looked at we've been rambling for for o- over an hour uh, are you still good to go <laughs> yeah let's do it okay cool um, and it comes all the way back to what you said at the beginning of like kind of your um, your deep dive in a different field uh, into uh, energy and carbon emissions and now we have the best fud of all, like, you know, Bitcoin boils the oceans and is bad for the environment. How do you, I mean, that one must drive you crazy. I'd love to get your take on that and how you're dealing with that when that fud comes up in in the boardrooms or the hallways that you're uh, frequenting, you know, during your day-to-day. This particular fud upsets me really deeply. Uh, I, I've spent over a decade uh, studying and working on energy markets and finance and economics, and now in the last few years, uh, you know, Bitcoin. And I feel that this is such a misunderstood area. Um, There's a lot of hot takes and a lot of loud opinions, but I think that what's really missing from the argument here is a holistic framework for addressing emissions reductions, if that is something that you think is a is an important goal or a priority. Um, so the fundamental question is, if you want to reduce emissions, is the right way to do that, to go around to individual uses of energy in the economy and make value judgments on which ones you think are worthy and not worthy? Um, that is just a terrible approach from an economist's point of view. And I mentioned earlier on the chat that, you know, there's actually a lot of things that economists agree on, um, especially, you know, in the field of microeconomics. And I think you could take someone, whether they're, you know, Keynesian or Austrian or even an MMTR, and any economist would agree um, that the best way to address that problem is not through an an authoritarian approach. The best way to address that problem is to price the externality and let the market sort out the rest. So now I have, this is one of the areas where I think Stefan would argue with me and say, but there's no externality. So let's introduce Coase theorem. Um, everybody listening to this should Google Coase theorem. It's a great place to start. 
Um, so Coase theorem says that uh, so long as there is um, no information asymmetry, and so long as people are free to negotiate, um, that where, if you have a situation where um, one business's emissions are causing harm to you know, another business downstream, um, they will be able to come to an agreement between the two of them uh, because there'll be some price at which the business that's affected is willing to incentivize the business that is producing um, the, the emissions or the whatever is the, the harm. And so that's a great starting point because it's a message about the efficiency of markets. Now you could say, okay, but Coase theorem doesn't work because we don't have perfect flows of information and we don't have totally free abilities to negotiate with each other. Um, and yes, um, the economy is incredibly complex and there are information asymmetries and we, for all kinds of reasons, um, markets are not efficient. Um, by definition, markets are not efficient because uh, markets are not fundamentally free. We live in a system of laws and regulation. So there is going to be um, some inefficiency there. However, uh, using economic tools, um, if you compare the different approaches, um, what you will still come to is a conclusion that says you are not going to achieve an efficient an outcome in a system where a government or some authority is going around pointing at things saying, this is a good use of emissions, this is a bad use of emissions. This is an allowed uh, use of energy or this is a banned use of energy. Um, you are not going to, uh, to have the same efficiency. And the reason why efficiency matters in economics is because every time you introduce inefficiency, what you're doing is you're actually taking wealth away from people. Um, if you look at a basic supply demand curve, you can calculate these areas of the curve that are called the consumer surplus and the producer surplus. And they represent the creation of value in the economy. And when you crunch those areas down, you're destroying value. And so the way to maximize value is to maximize efficiency. Um, this is probably going to sound offensive, you know, to people who are really emotionally invested on the other side of this issue and haven't studied economics. But if you actually like really study the economics, like go and get a university textbook, go and take a university course. It doesn't matter, you know, which school of thought you might have started from. I think that there are some really important insights in the way that economists look at this problem. And so you end up at a conclusion that says, uh, if we want to incentivize the reduction of emissions using economic tools, because we do care about efficiency, how we incentivize that reduction is not through command and control, it's through price signals. And so when we talk about, um, again, this kind of premia where, you know, you have these signals that transmit through different uh, layers of the financial market, what some countries have tried to do is they've tried to um, add a carbon premia onto financial decision-making. And so they have created like cap and trade schemes in the EU where you issue these carbon permits the market freely trades the permits 
and arrives at an equilibrium price organically. Um, those assets are then held on balance sheets. There are capital ratios that apply to balance sheets. That then feeds into other incentives around capital allocation. And it just integrates and becomes interoperable with all of the decisions that are already being made. And at no point does that require the EU government to say, well, we are going to ban this type of energy use or that type of energy use. Um, they may still choose to do that in addition to having a cap and trade scheme. But that is the lesson that you take from any economics textbook. Um, and, and so the command and control approach um, or the sort of more authoritarian approach that's being advocated by critics spreading FUD, uh, I think is quite dangerous and out of touch with best practice. Um, it's out of touch with um, what serious experts in this space are advising. Um, and I don't think that it's a very well thought through position because um, you know, if they would turn the mirror back on themselves and say, well, how would I feel if someone came into my home and started pointing around at all of, all of the things that uh, I use energy on, um, making value judgments on whether that had value or utility to me when it should be my decision as to whether I value that thing, I paid for it. Um, you know, so I, I just, I'm really concerned that um, there is a lack of understanding of, you know, basic economic principles, economic tools, um, you know, that can assist with um, incentives in policy. And, you know, that is such a foundational approach to policymaking in general around the world. So if people um, aren't willing to engage with that, I think that they're actually missing a big part of what drives policy decisions, just in a general sense. Um, to cherry pick Bitcoin, when Bitcoin is already about a third renewables and trending closer towards renewables anyway, and not even to get into the whole stranded energy stuff, which is super exciting. Um, I, you know, it does feel like um, quite an uninformed position, but the fact that I, I think that it continues to circulate shows that, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of lack, there is a lot of lack of awareness um, around uh, energy policy and emissions policy. It's actually um, its own kind of rabbit hole. And uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a topic that I wish was approached with some more respect and some more, uh, you know, uh, evidence, I would say. Um, and again, you don't need to subscribe to a particular school of thought of economics to, to see how this all plays out. Um, it's really just an appreciation for, uh, you know, how do markets work? Um, why, why do markets matter? Um, you know, and, and the fact that the reason why um, we, we have all these tools is not markets for the sake of markets or, or anything like that. It's, it's because this is actually the way that civilization has progressed throughout humanity. And I think, you know, everybody wants um, humanity to continue to progress in the most sustainable way possible. And that will mean different things to different people. Uh, but to, uh, to, I think, try to... Um, hang Bitcoin out as the example um, is ultimately likely to backfire. It's, it's pretty uncomfortable as well for a lot of people, I think, to face the fact, uh, you know, I'll be first to put my hand up and admit I'd been pretty effectively greenwashed over the last 10 years, maybe even longer, you know, that there's been this, this kind of real strong narrative uh, pushed on us that uh, you know 
you know, we're, we're going to wreck the planet and it's all our fault. And it's, it's actually your fault, you know, that there's been a very, very strong narrative and to have changed. Many of us have, have changed our behaviors uh, to, to try and fall in line and, and do what we think is right. Um, so that's why this FUD is just so damn easy for people to like, you know, hang their coats on, you know, they see this thing, bad for the environment, hate it. Rather than guys, like just think about this for a second. And I think, yeah, safe uses the the examples of, you know, if I was to walk into someone's house and chastise them for, well, you've got a tumble dry. I don't have one of those. And you choose to, you know, use a dishwasher and I wash my dishes. Uh, it's, that's the exact kind of point that you're making. And it's, um, I don't know, we're, we're going to be facing this one for, for many years, I, I think, because there's been so much of this kind of narrative forced down people's necks that um, it's going to be a tough one to undo. You know, when, um, when, you, when you face these kind of um, discussions. Yeah, I think that it does reveal uh, ignorance, um, you know, when, when people are kind of pushing that narrative because uh, when you've really uh, engaged with this in a serious way, um, you know, and I worked on carbon markets for, for a number of years and, and it was my specialty in my postgraduate degree, uh, it's just not really good enough, um, you know, to have that as your, as your um, policy position because it's not, it's not a serious position it's not tenable how are you going to go around and tell billions of people around the world to stop using energy uh for whatever reason um yeah it it's 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 just um i just can't really comprehend it and you know it's i i don't want to come across as um as being divisive on this issue because i have a lot of empathy for um, people that are concerned about these issues and I think people are capable of holding quite nuanced perspectives on these issues. Um, my dad, as a climate denier, said to me that he does care about um, protecting the environment because to, from his point of view, there doesn't need to be such a thing as man-made global warming in order to care about uh, resource sustainability and the health of the environment in which we live. We, are, we do inhabit a physical environment um, and of course we all want that to be safe and clean that that makes a lot of sense um, you know that's a more nuanced position and I think um, you know I, I draw on that example because uh, oftentimes you know I think especially when these conversations are playing out on forums like Twitter everything descends into a bit of a screaming match um, <laughs> and and we don't get past the surface level people don't engage in good faith and uh, I, I personally I feel really mixed about Twitter. I, I feel like I've learned so much from it. And then I also find myself all the time really just wanting to step away, <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, I get, I, I hope that when people are actually having real life conversations and they're staring each other in the face that, um, that they are having a more sophisticated, more nuanced conversation because, um, you know, the impression that you get from the online discourse is that, um, people are so grounded in the view and they're not willing to really uh, go through that process of, of asking themselves, well, what, what would I need to know in order to reach the conclusion that this other person has? And as a, as a society, we need to retain that skill. We need to practice that skill. Um, to me, that is what 
being open-minded is all about. And, you know, if you don't have those qualities of being open-minded and being humble, um, you, you're going to miss out on these great opportunities in life. Uh, so, you know, I, I, to me, that that's, that's something that I really value. And um, I hope that a lot of other people do too. What do you think? How, how do you think you've changed? What's, what's changed in you the most since, you know, coming to Bitcoin? Because we talk about this a lot uh, in the space about how it's changed certain behaviors, certain thoughts, mindsets, habits. Um, anything come to mind that, that, you know, that you've seen a radical change in, in your own personality? I think that um, what Bitcoin has uh done for my mindset is given me a very conscious awareness of uh, how radically uh, a paradigm can shift and the power of memes and the power of networks and communities. Uh, Bitcoin should not exist. Like it's a miracle that, that this thing exists. Um, I don't think I'll ever really be able to comprehend how, you know, it we live in this one sliver of the multiverse where, where this actually succeeded, right? And there are so many reasons why it should have failed and it just made it. Um, and, you know, so I think, like, I am so much more aware of possibilities now uh, because Bitcoin is a miracle. Uh, and so it kind of makes you feel like anything is possible. Perfect. So if you had one orange pill left to give, who would you give it to? <laughs> And why? Yeah, I think that it feels uh, really tempting to kind of call out, uh, you know, someone who's in like uh, a position of power or authority or that type of thing. But, um, you know, I would just say like the, the kind of, just the most normy person that exists. Whoever is the most normy average person that's out there, um, you know, because the, that's the whole point. That's the whole point is that, uh, you know, Bitcoin has changed the game uh, because it has empowered all of these people around the world. Um, and we're, at the same time, we're still so early. Only about 1% of the world's population uh, has understood Bitcoin enough to use it. And that's just, I mean, 1%. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, the unnamed pleb, whoever they are out there in the world, um, you know, light the candle and pass the torch along. <laughs> I love it. It's like the, the unknown soldier. Yeah. Who, who's the unknown pleb? Exactly. The unknown pleb. Exactly. Whoever, whoever he or she is. We'll listen to this one day and uh, yeah, hook you up for an orange pill. So where, where, can, <laughs> where can this unknown pleb come and find you? What's the best way to, to reach out and, and say hi and, and interact with, uh, with you, Chloe? Uh, so yeah, I, I haven't deleted my Twitter yet and my DMs are open. So if anyone wants to send me a question or some feedback or get in touch, I'm at Chloe White Oz. Um, Oz is A-U-S. Uh, and yeah, hopefully uh, some people will reach out and tell me, you know, uh, what are some other ways of thinking about these issues? Uh, you know, what do you think I missed? Um, what do you think I should learn next? And um, 
yeah, I, uh, I'm really grateful that I've met uh, so many incredible people in this community and I, I have many more friends still to make. So that's the best way to reach me. Well, that's so, uh, so great. And uh, all the best of luck with, uh, with your role. And thank you for what you're doing. It's, uh, it's great to know that uh, we've got a Bitcoiner, uh, you know, someone on our side, also on that side and um, infiltrating people's minds with, with your knowledge and your viewpoints and everything that you've learned. And this is, I mean, this is the ultimate network effect, right? Once that starts rippling through, not, not just um, one country, but then onto a different one, then onto a different one. And then we'll see this, um, this, this transformation we're, we're all hoping for. You asked me before if I know any international government Bitcoiners, and I don't think that I do. So if there is anyone out there, please reach out. Uh, yeah, that would be, that would be really exciting. I hadn't, thought about that too much before i know on the on the brink podcast uh nick carter interviewed someone who was ex-canadian central bank which was really exciting um but yeah so we'll see i'll let you know if anyone contacts me awesome thanks chloe have a great evening and uh sorry this ran over time a little bit but uh it was a great discussion and you had so much to say and i really appreciate your time it was a pleasure thank you so much for inviting me on anytime take care Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and thank you Chloe for coming on the show and sharing everything that you were able to share. Chloe and I will do a follow-up on this in around uh, two to six months time, fingers crossed, and uh, I really look forward to that conversation to see what else has transpired. Please reach out to her. You can go and find her. I'm not tagging her in the release or in the show notes, but uh, do your own research. She's pretty easy to find and uh, I'm sure she'd enjoy a DM. And make sure you rib Stefan and Keitan and uh, Uncle Bill and uh, Wizard of Oz. You know who those guys are. It's an amazing scene down there in Australia. I'd love to get down there one day and go hang with these guys, have a beer, and share a little banter, of course. Pommy Aussie banter and talk Bitcoin. Anyway, before we sign off, make sure you guys are stacking safe. You know how to do that now. You've got to get your keys onto a hardware wallet. Now, if you're gonna use a device, I definitely recommend Bitbox 02 hardware wallet. It is a Bitcoin only hardware wallet and you can find it at shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. I have an interview with the CEO and uh, founder coming out very soon. And make sure you're stacking in the UK with coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. That is a Bitcoin only exchange. Across Europe, Relay, R-E-L-A-I, .ch forward slash bitten. You can fiat cost average out of euros and Swiss and into Satoshis. And of course, in the US, hello across the pond. Thank you so much for listening. You guys are covered. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. They fly across all 50 states. You probably saw them at the Bitcoin conference if you were there in Miami. They are the funnest bunch of guys out there. Go get stacking. Thanks. And I look forward to the next show.